This podcast is the first of two on the passion narrative of the gospel according to Mark. As you know, passion narrative of one of the three synoptic gospels is read in its entirety on Palm Sunday, each of the three years of the lectionary. But good for, for Good Friday, it is always the passion according to John's gospel. This year, year B of the lectionary for Mass, we will use the Passion according to Mark for Palm Sunday. Now, while the reading of these chapters 14 and 15, the Passion, does not occur in the lectionary for any other Sunday or weekday during the whole year, our consideration of it now in two podcasts will help in understanding the overall viewpoint of the Gospel of Mark, on which we will be preaching for the whole year. Truth be told, the whole effort of the evangelist Mark converges and has its climax in these two chapters before the terse and quite mysterious rendition of the empty tomb story, which ends so abruptly at chapter 16, verse 8. In the third part of this gospel, beginning in chapter 11, Mark the Evangelist portrays Jesus' final visit to Jerusalem, a visit he knew would be his last. It is virtually impossible to identify Mark's sources throughout these chapters, but it is clear that he took whatever information he received from tradition and produced a unified narrative that flows slowly but integrally, integrally together to uncover the deep meaning of Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection as the fitting culmination of his life for others. Jesus' provocative actions in the temple start a series of confrontations with the religious leadership in chapter 12. In them, Jesus confounds the Sanhedrin members, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes with parables and conundrums that they just can't answer. He finishes the rout with an outright denunciation of the scribes, but then takes a time out in chapter 13 to give his disciples and us a farewell speech that will clarify the order of things to come, namely that although terrible times would be coming soon to Jerusalem, there was much more to occur in the world before his glorious return in the parousia. Mark quickly takes us back to the present moment in Jerusalem in chapter 14, where he frames the story of unfettered love with the grisly details of a devilish conspiracy. Right away we learn that the temple authorities welcome Judas, who will betray, who comes to them to betray Jesus. This would give them their chance to, quote, arrest Jesus by treachery and put him to death, as Mark tells us in 
But then a woman, unidentified and unnamed, barges into the predominantly male space, a table fellowship with Jesus and some of his disciples. The host is Simon, called the leper, someone that Jesus has perhaps cured of leprosy at an earlier date. The woman, further disregarding the honor code of the time, pours out a jar of precious ointment on Jesus' head. Now, anointing with oil had many uses in ancient, um, in ancient times, of course, for the healing of many ailments, also to show honor to someone, to respectfully prepare a corpse for burial. And this way is what the prophet did to anoint and consecrate a new king. Mark gives no indication of the woman's intentions except for the lavishness of the gesture. The oil she used was pure nard, the Angelus tells us, worth 300 denarii, a year's wages. She doesn't skimp, but breaks the bottle to pour it out in its entire contents in an act of spontaneous and unrestrained love of Jesus. Just like the widow who put in her last penny into the temple treasury, this woman does not count the cost of her loving act. We are never told of any previous encounter that she had with Jesus, but we can be sure that, that what this woman of Bethany did was a profound gesture of her great respect for Jesus. Was this a prophetic act to proclaim Jesus' kingship, a model of obscurity of his upcoming sacrifice in a world that took no note of him? Mark does not clue us in here, but leaves the situation open to a variety of interpretations. It may have even appeared to be a promiscuous act by the woman, but she was sure of what she was doing. It was a loving expression that should move us to consider how we love our Savior and how we ought to show our love for others. When the other guests became indignant in, at the extravagance of her action, Jesus defends her act staunchly. He explains that she has predicted his burial and cared for it, cared for it in advance out of loving concern. For in his love, he would die for her and for all of us. Do not misunderstand Jesus' statement when he says, the poor you will have always with you. Everyone but a few people in the ancient world were poor by our standards. Jesus is not referring to that. He's referring here to the what we would call today the 2% of any population who are challenged either physically or emotionally or mentally so as to be unable to work, to hold a steady job. 
I find the drama of Mark's presentation highly effective now as he reveals the treachery of Judas in four narrative snippets intercalated with some poignant events before Jesus dies so ignominiously on the cross. In 1411, Judas makes a bargain with the chief priests, identifying them, Mark does, as the real force behind the unlawful and gruesome execution of Jesus. The touching scene of Jesus' self-giving at the Last Supper follows. This certainly would require much more focus than we can give it here, but for now we can say that Mark shows us at the Last Supper how Jesus explains his upcoming passion by the profound symbolism of a meal with the staples of human nourishment, the bread he blesses before the supper, and the wine they share after they have eaten the lamb. With this bread and cup of blessing, he shows them that his whole life and upcoming death are for the spiritual sustenance of them all, of all who follow him. His body will be broken on the cross and his blood poured out in death for many. This means that everyone who believes in the kingdom of Jesus who puts God at the center of their life, everyone may now partake of the sacred meal that forms a sacrament of the Paschal mystery. They are called to have a share in Jesus' redeeming actions for all. This will be the eschatological climax of Jesus' life. He says that there will be no more of his mission, until after his upcoming death and his resurrection to the heavenly banquet. Mark continues his dramatic flair by intertwining the denials of Judas and Peter with the agony and the arrest of Jesus and his trial before the Sanhedrin. The innocence of Jesus contrasts with the guilty denial of Peter occurring just outside. Judas's kiss of betrayal is so abhorrent that the evangelist Luke cannot bear to tell it in his account of the scene. Mark, however, does tell it with the horrible words of Judas to the mob, quote, arrest him and lead him away securely. The bravery of Jesus on trial, when the high priest asks the scorn, is on trial. The bravery of Jesus is on trial when the high priest asks his scornful question, Who then are you, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus responds simply, I am. And he quotes the prediction of the book of Daniel, and you will quote, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
This claim of intimacy at the very throne of God is taken as blasphemy by the high priest. He rips at his clothes, a well-known gesture of dramatic disapproval in those times. At this point, the entire Sanhedrin jumps in on the condemnation. They spit on him, blindfold him, and strike him, not waiting for the rough guards who also beat him and take him away in custody. What a contrast Jesus makes with the cringing Peter who cowers out of sight until he is confronted by a lowly maid. He denies his bond with Jesus outright. I do not know what you're talking about, he says. He denies Jesus again to the bystanders, and then a third time when he swears, I do not know this man about whom you are talking. His cowardice confronts us all. What would we do in such a predicament? Yet, when the cock suddenly crows, Peter, left to himself, breaks down and weeps. His deep faith in Jesus will save him. Of Judas, on the other hand, we do not hear another word. Jesus is now utterly alone, the last of his followers having renounced allegiance to him, as the evangelist tells us with curses and swearing. The trial before Pilate shows that that, that man is a just it, I'm sorry. The trial before Pilate shows that man to be just as the ancient historians have recorded of him. He was an insensitive despot, unbending and eager to be rid of a bothersome problem. His interrogation of Jesus is met with passivity and silence. This Roman could have no idea of who was before him and what a death sentence for Jesus would mean to the world. The Barabbas story that follows is so bizarre that it must be true. It is told in all four Gospels. Pilate apparently tries to sidestep this embarrassing situation of putting an innocent man on trial. Mark tells us that he uses an old custom of freeing one prisoner each year in honor of the Passover. In an attempt to placate the angry mob, Pilate offers to release Jesus as the one criminal allowed to go free. The irony is almost unbearable here when Pilate says, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? This Roman official, the delegate of the emperor himself, has unconsciously named Jesus the Messiah of Israel with the title, as Rome would put it, the King of the Jews. The wickedness of the priestly leadership comes to the fore again when they prod the crowd to choose a known murderer, a prisoner for sedition, to go free. Interestingly enough, his name was Barabbas, the Greek ending form ending in S is common for a Jewish name, which was Bar-Abba, which means in Aramaic, 
son of the father. Is this an ironic coincidence of history? Pilate demands that a charge be laid against Jesus, but the mob screams, crucify him, crucify him. Why, Pilate retorts, what evil has he done? But they just shout the louder, crucify him, crucify him. Now, Pilate, known to ancient historians for his self-will, couldn't be more pleased. The insistence of the priests and the rage of the mob were a gift, giving him the opportunity to do away with a big problem by just agreeing with them and the threatening mob. He blusters his authority by mercifully discouraging Jesus, but then he hands him over to be crucified. The same irony occurs with the soldiers mocking Jesus in their barracks with a royal purple cloak, a crown made of thorny weed called acanthus, and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, they cry. Mark presents the scene with devastating clarity, showing them, and I quote, striking his head with the reed and spitting on him. Again, this scene is so hideous that Luke omits it entirely in his version of the Passion. Well, it is important now for us to understand just what execution by crucifixion was really like in the ancient world, but I think this is a good place to stop right now. We're out of time, and we have plenty to meditate on as Jesus is about to go to his death in the blazing midnight, midday sun on Calvary Hill. We shall continue with the circumstances and events of Jesus' death itself in our next podcast, part two of The Passion of Our Lord According to Mark.